Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Coach Kasim and Dr. Mike Isretel back on the show talking about your favorite subject, biomechanics. So we're going to be talking about resistance profiles, strength profiles, making them complementary or not, and talking about banding movements, specifically the machine hack squat. What are the nuanced discussions here? What's the practical implications here? And as always, guys, do remember at Revive Stronger, we provide online coaching that is very personalized. If you would like to hop on a consultation with one of the team to think about coaching, you can always click the link in the bio to learn more about that service. But guys, without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today we have a great roundtable again uh, between Kasim and Dr. Mike. And today we're going to be talking about a lot of things, including kind of training at different muscle lengths, uh, kind of resistance profiles, strength profiles, however you want to kind of call those. I'm never sure of the terminology there and uh, whether or not they're applicable for certain lifts and what these guys kind of point of views and perspectives are. And we just have a back and forth and really productive discussion, hopefully. So essentially, I think the way I saw it was uh, the use of bands uh, to adjust the resistance profile of a hack squat specifically was discussed, uh, a machine hack squat, just in case anyone's thinking about the other type, uh, to better match the strength of the muscle through the entire range, thus reverse banding top to bottom, aiding most at the bottom and then dropping off as we come towards the top. And I thought I'd first just let Mike kind of give his position stand and uh, then Kasim can respond and we can kind of have a bit of a back and forth. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So um, I saw some discussions about banding the hack squat. And this is something that uh, myself and Jared have uh, come out a few times and said it's probably not the, the best idea. And uh, there's some discussions of banding the hack squat. And there's sort of two slightly different discussions going on. One discussion is what would the effect be, expected effect, theoretical effect of banding the hack squat? on results. And the other discussion would be, if you were going to go ahead and ban hack squats, how would you do it to minimize the negative effect or maximize the positive effect? Um, so one of those is a grander discussion than the other. On the grand scheme, uh, it seems that a lot of the theory and literature, or maybe I would say even the preponderance of it, shows that some combination of two things. One, as a research community, the current body of knowledge is not very strong in its understanding of what fractions of a muscle's potential range of motion should be loaded for best results in hypertrophy. Like We're just not very clear about that. So there's the supposition that if the muscle's uh, active more of the time rather than less of the time during its range of motion, that that would be better. It's not entirely clear that that, in fact, would be the case. So if we're saying, hey, you know, if a muscle force curve is matched pretty well by an exercise, that, that's got to be a good thing. It's not so clear that that's a good thing. Uh, it might be some reasonable uh, ideas as to why that would be better than a, a poor force curve match. But uh, it's, to me, at least not convincing that that's something we have to attend to greatly. We just don't really know much about it. But what we do know a little bit better, so there's this kind of potential upside or downside, let's call it even a potential upside 
of if you match the force curve of the muscle or of the movement rather um, to the force curve of, of how the muscles are essentially pulling, then you hypothetically could get the muscle to work closer to its maximum abilities to morph the range of motion. And that's hypothetically better for hypertrophy. Again, hypothetically, because we, we don't have any very, very good compelling reason to believe that. We don't have any very, very good compelling reason not to believe it, but it's sort of hazy. It's sort of maybe, oh, maybe, maybe there's some benefit there. Maybe there's a downside. On the other end, and, and, and that idea that if we were to take that seriously, that the force curves should match, then banding sounds like a pretty decent idea. Because if you band a hack squat, for example, the, the muscles kind of try pretty hard the entire time versus having to try really hard at the bottom and not so much harder, at least in the upper half. The other hand, we have an idea that uh, stretching under load produces uh, a lot of hypertrophy, a bit more than making the muscle very tense at other parts of its range of motion. So for example, if you were to take just the top half of the hack spot, really load it to maximum versus the bottom half only loaded to maximum, which one would cause more hypertrophy? We have a pretty decent reason to believe that the bottom half would probably win because stretch under load has some pretty old um, compounded layers of research supporting its theoretical application. And a few new studies have shown that, oh, gee, maybe there are, actually is some a good reason to, to even bias the end tail end of the range of motion, potentially even more than we have been in full range of motion. So in a full range of motion, let's take it hack squat. We do have, you know, not so much pushing the muscle to its limits on the top half, a lot of pushing its limits at the bottom half, but they're split sort of to a, a relatively even degree because the loading is the same throughout the movement. Now, the new literature, as some people have began to suggest, says that, hey, we should bias even more at the lengthened extreme. And Cass and I have been talking through Instagram Messenger of some of those folks saying, well, you know, where does that end? Sort of theoretically, you could have all of the hardest part of the exercise in the last five centimeters of range of motion. And the rest is easy as hell. So why even do it? And then why are we just doing partials? Maybe we should just do partials. I think all of that is a step a little bit too far. There may be a, a revelation in the literature after several more rounds of investigation where it's shown that actually, you know, in some cases, partials at the very stretch position are superior. And there's some, we can talk later about some hypothetical reasons why that might be the case, but we, we don't have to suppose it yet. All we have to do is suppose that stretch under load is pretty important. And the evidence strength for stretch under load being important is stronger, in my view, than the evidence and theoretical strength of trying to get a muscle to exact itself the entire range of motion or as much as possible. So force curve matching, as would be done by banding in the hack squat, seems to me to have less theoretical and practical evidence for it as a hypertrophy uh, improving mechanism than uh, really emphasizing the other way around, which is to say, no, 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 we don't need to make the movement more uniform. We need to make it less uniform and emphasize the stretch even more. If you were to propose emphasizing the stretch, I would say you are on theoretically more solid ground and empirically more solid ground than if you were to propose making the movement more uniformly uh, taxing of the musculature through its range of motion. Me personally, I think that there's not sufficient evidence for both. And uh, what I would say is that means I lean towards the status quo of leaving movements that already have most of their challenging parts at the bottom end, like the hack squat, which is already in, in essence functionally biased towards the bottom end. That's the hardest part of the hack squat. If you just leave that movement alone, 
that's probably your best stab at the best hypertrophy because we don't know if exaggerating the bottom even further is a good idea, but we do know that exaggerating the other parts moves us even further away from the more evidentiary rigorous model of stretch under load. And in the current research and data environment and the current theoretical environment, I feel a little bit less comfortable moving away from that, even though I don't even feel comfortable enough moving towards it. But if I had to pick, I wouldn't do things that reduce stretch under load because it seems to be a rather powerful mediator. Does that mean we need a lot more of it than we get just from traditional free movements? I'm not convinced of that. I wouldn't make that argument. But does that mean that we should be having less of it, which is a necessity? Uh, having less is a necessity when we banned it. I would say, you know, I would like to see some more evidence that uh, banding and other ways to even out the force curve are hypertrophically more stimulative than a force curve that is natural, for example, in the hack squat, which has to bias things more towards the stretch. So that, that's kind of my view. And so when people say, hey, should I ban the squat? I'd say, well, you know, my, my best guess is probably not. Uh, because if I had to take a real best guess, it would be just don't do anything. My second best guess based on the evidence would be, well, actually, you want to reverse bias the squat. So you actually want to make it harder at the bottom, even than it is, uh, and then still easier at the top or even skip the top. My third choice would be to bias the squat such that it is harder at the top than it is now, and thus creates a more even uh, force distribution, because I think that might be moving in the wrong direction of hypertrophy. And this is all a very limited amount of direct research, um, some of which were, I was directly involved in, actually. It was one of the first studies on, on band kinematics and kinetics. Uh, first author on that. Um, uh, so that's uh, my view currently. And it would just take some kind of evidence or reasoning for me to be able to see, oh, hey, like there's a really a good reason to try to even out the force curve, on, especially this particular movement. So th that's kind of my opinion on the matter. Fantastic. Hey, Steve, you're, you're responsible for making sure that I remember <laughs> all of the points. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll do my best. Yeah. Um, so if we're, if we're looking at this example of just the hack and we just, and we just keep it relative to that, um, there's some points that, you know, that I'll clearly agree in principle and that I don't think that we need to match the strength profile to the resistance profile a hundred percent. In fact, I would argue that that's completely impractical. And really, if you did that, the only application would maybe be a one RM because your actual strength profile changes as you fatigue. So like the, the profile that you would have on a one hour, like on rep one is going to be a little bit different than two, three, four, whatever. And the amount of change will vary, you know, between the exercises, whether they're compound exercises, which muscles, you know, lots of different things, but the general pattern is we tend to fatigue a little bit more on the short end first and we fatigue in the lengthened end to a lesser degree. But again, it kind of depends on the movement, you know, the mechanics of the movement, the muscles involved, et cetera. But so in terms of needing to match or force match, I'd say that's probably overemphasized. But then when we look at the context of when we're, you know, how biased does an exercise need to be, there's probably a point of diminishing returns. We're saying, okay, if loading the length in half is going to be good, 
does that mean that lo loading the most endpoint is going to be better? And that's kind of what we're talking about is like how far to the extreme does that go? And that's one of the reasons that I did that little model of the hack squat showing, you know, what is an estimated strength profile versus what is the resistance profile that I would be getting using the reverse bands um, and then correlating that to my or comparing that to my exact setup. And the idea was to show that even though I'm using a reverse band, is that the exercise is still biased towards the length and position. I mean, it's, it's still heaviest at the bottom, even with the assistance of the band, because the hack squat is so lengthened bias. So, I mean, if you were to compare this across other exercises, you know, the, the hack squat would be more lengthened bias than the squat because you have got a longer lever, you know, that you're able to move in the hack squat. Whereas the squat, you have to maintain some sort of center and mass and balance and obviously it'll fluctuate with the individual. So you could look at is, is that you would almost be taking the resistance profile of the hack squat and moving it, you know, maybe a little bit closer to a squat, but with the ability to get the more range of motion and the ability to get the greater bias towards the quads, because you can, you know, utilize less hips if wanted, you know, because of the indirect force into the foot platform and all the funny physics and stuff that are going on. But what I'm looking at is saying, okay, if there is value, not just to the very bottom position, but there's value to the bottom 25% of the range of motion or the bottom 50% of the range of motion, could I position the exercise so that, it's still biased towards the length and portion, but not just so biased towards just only the bottom, like couple degrees, but maybe the bottom 25 or the bottom 50. And so what the banding that I just kind of naturally found to be really good for, you know, for me and for what I'm feeling. And I compared that, it looks like the bottom 25% is where I have that kind of force match. Right. And then from there, I mean, if you wanted to actually force match a hack squat, you would need like, quadruple the load at the top position, like towards lockout. Like, you know, if you can squat, you know, if you can squat 500 pounds, then you would probably need like 2000 pounds of force coming down from the hack, you know, as you're getting close to lockout. So the band isn't coming close to matching the strength profile. The strength profile is still is so biased towards being really strong in the top position that my argument would be, well, if I can, if, if, if I'm, following the theory that there's benefit not just to the very bottom but the bottom 25% to 50% somewhere in there and call it 30% if that you know is going to be good which i would say that's what i see in the research when you look at you know things that aren't fully lengthened that are still producing pretty good results in comparison to to other things like for example you know if we've looked at things with the leg extension and shown that you know the rec fem is still showing a bias in a leg extension there doing the bottom partial when we know that's not a length in rec fem. In fact, in the leg extension, you're not fully lengthening any of the quads because you can't get full, you can't quite get full knee flexion in a leg extension because stuff just gets in the way. So to me, that kind of reinforces the idea that maybe there is value to not just the most stretched position, but just being on that stretch side of the equation and so if I can maybe make the tension requirement in that bottom half a little bit greater per rep, I'm looking at that as like, all right, maybe this is a more efficient way, or maybe this, you know, potentially could be a more optimal way. We don't have the applied research comparing, you know, banded to not banded or, you know, et cetera. There's some stuff on strength, um, you know, that looks at using different resistance profiles and stuff like that. 
Um, but I would say the closest correlation that we have is some of the upper body range of motion things where, you know, you see some difference in performance and partials at where there would be a peak moment arm, you know, for that tissue and things like that. But, you know, that's a loose correlation at best. But my position would be, I would say, you know, there are practical reasons to use a reverse band, whether that be introducing somebody to greater ranges of motion that they're, they're not used to and helping them, you know, control that, et cetera. Um, or, you know, just helping them manage rep speed, et cetera. So you could, you could look at using this as a teaching tool as well as a hypertrophy tool. Um, you know, sometimes you could look at it as a safety thing as people are getting to fatigue, you know, and they would have the tendency to just like dive bomb that last rep or whatever, you know, maybe that's a, you know, especially if you're a trainer and you're working with somebody that's not as experienced or as disciplined, you could incorporate that. But then on the, you know, well, what about just maximal hypertrophy side? I tend to see that when people fail doing the reverse band that, the, I mean, they still reach failure at the like exact same position as they would if they didn't, which is, you know, they're able to come up just a few degrees off of the bottom and then, and then it's right back down, even with the band. So that like we're reaching fatigue at the same relative point. The argument would be, this is like, all right, I think, and then this is something Mike and I talked about in DMs is, well, would they have gotten another rep or two if they weren't getting the fatigue from the, the top position? And what, what does that losing a rep or two compared to maybe loading a little bit more of the profile that's on the bottom half? And so that's when I was looking at the comparison of like, hey, if I'm really getting a lot out of not just the very bottom position, but the, the bottom 25 is like, it's a, it's a real grind for those quads now. Um, I think that offsets the additional fatigue that you would get from the short position because there's just such a discrepancy between how strong you are versus in the short position, how much more strong you are there versus the small amount that you get from the band in that position. Like it's a huge magnitude difference between the amount of increase in resistance you're getting from a band versus the amount of increase you're getting from leverage. So you like, you know, you can, you're climbing it like four to six times more in terms of your strength versus what the band is adding. So I would say, I think the cost of the extra fatigue at the top is worth the extra work that you're getting in the bottom 25 to 50% of the rep over just at the bottom. But the caveat there is, I think if preferences is an issue here, I think you're gonna get good results either way. But theoretically, if we're having fun and I'm, you know, I'm trying to look at this and be like, all right, if I had to choose one, like bolt to my head, which one would be better? That's where I think maybe the cost and benefit ratio would slightly favor the band, right? And I think Mike, I don't know if you raised your hand and you wanted to respond to that. Might have saw out of the corner of my eye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I can wait, cast. My apologies. Okay, no, no big deal. Um, so wrapping up here, I would say that it's not important that, and we kind of talked about this on our podcast, Steve. Um, it's not important that we always try and focus on matching the resistance curve exactly to the strength curve. But I think there is validity in trying to have a resistance profile that is good enough. And that means it's going to, it's going to feel good. It's going to make the rep speed, you know, and the consistency of the rep, you know, fairly smooth. You're not going to have like one part that's super easy. And then you just fly through the other part. Like we've all done those exercises where it's got a really weird profile where it's like, there's one part of the exercise where you almost have to like, you have to like let off or like, you know, because it just becomes awkward to be moving a weight so fast there. Right. You know, like it's like the equivalent of the, you know, the people that get to the top of the squat and they do like the hip thrusting at the, the top of the squat when there's like no load and they're just kind of humping the air there, you know? So 
I think it's like once we when we figure out what we want to accomplish from an exercise, where we want that, what part of the range of motion that we want to challenge is it's like, okay, how do we bias that, but not make it not make the profile so biased that then we're not getting benefits over a decent percentage of that. And then we're not making some part of the range of motion, we'll say irrelevant from a, you know, a force tension perspective. Go ahead, Mike, if you've got, yeah, if, if Kasim's done. <laughs> sure. Sure. I have three, three follow-up questions for that. So you figure at the bottom 25% or 30% is better to focus on than a smaller fraction, say 15% or 10% of the bottom. How do you figure that? Well, when I'm, when I'm looking at the, the research, for example, it, we see that things that aren't all the way at the bottom are still trending in that they're outperforming things that are biased closer to the short position. So if we look at, if we, if we look at the leg extension, the recent leg extension ones, for example, right, they did full range, bottom partials, top partials, right? And I'm looking at what is the actual muscle length that is occurring in those, right? And the, the relative muscle length. So when I'm looking and I'm seeing like, hey, you know, a muscle that, you know, like the rec fem, for example, when they're looking at that, if that is still getting improvement there, that means that it's on a side where like the stimulus is increased there, even though it's not in its fully lengthened position and in all the quads, even though they're not in the same degree, like all the, we'll call them the short quads, the ones that don't cross the hip, even though they're not reaching terminal knee flexion, they're showing that improvement there. So that means there's some sort of continuum, some sort of graduation. It's not a black and white. And that like, if you get 95% down into a, the lengthened position that you get no benefit, but then you go that last 5% and then all of a sudden all of the benefit comes, it shows that there is some sort of continuum there. Right. And then the other thing that I would look at is, is that, you know, from a loadability practicality standpoint, and then I'm sure you've noticed this with proxies as well is, when we are getting to the extremes of the stretch, that does seem to be a place where we include like a little bit more fatigue, a little bit more like soreness and doms and stuff like, and we've done stuff in the house too, where we've compared different resistance profiles versus different muscle lengths and nothing seems to have quite the same impact on loss of force production and soreness as actually getting the most possible stretch you can. So even if you take them, um, like you take one of the prime machines, like the, the bicep curl machine, and you load it so that it's hard in the lengthened position, that doesn't produce the same amount of force loss and soreness, especially DOMS, that doing is something that would actually lengthen the biceps from an anatomical perspective with some degree of shoulder extension and then doing it there, even if the resistance profile was not as biased towards the bottom. So I do think that we may be kind of getting to where there may be that point of diminishing returns where it's like the very last few degrees of the stretch may be super good for hypertrophy, but we may be doing something similar to like training to failure. And it's like, okay, training to failure. I mean, obviously there's a ton of stimulus coming in those last couple reps, but are we also at that point too, where maybe that's where like some of the consequences of that are starting to roll back. So potentially, you know, the amount of frequency and volume and stuff that I could utilize if I only emphasize that very bottom position could be a little bit less. So if I'm looking at how do you how know much that? Mechanic, the, I, I'm putting that together, like correlation proxies, anecdote, right? So, so like, which, what, what, which, what do you mean by correlation specific? proxies? So I'm looking at, so like from a force production standpoint, when we look at that, we're comparing, all right, if I do an exercise and it's overload and length and position, 
but it's in a mid-range muscle length, right? And then, then we look at 24 hours later, how much maximal force production is regained. And then 48 hours later, how much is regained? 72 hours, how much is regained, right? And we compare that to when we do like an incline type curl in shoulder extension, right? Is that we're seeing that the muscle Which length- the more extreme range of motion. Yes, the more extreme range of motion, right? Is causing it to take longer to return back to your, you know, your baseline force production, right? And then also people are reporting more DOMS in that position relative to the other. And we did these, um, we did these same individual uh, unilateral, right? So training one arm in one protocol, one arm in the other protocol. And we did it for elbow flexion and we did it for uh, knee extension. And then basically what we found is, is that the range of motion seemed to be much more impactful than the resistance profile in terms of the DOMS and the delayed recovery to baseline force production. If that makes sense, that's that's the stuff that, we did in house. So that's a fatigue proxy, essentially. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's implying and then so where's that your maybe, stimulus proxy, right? Well, so I mean, so for there, I mean, I don't, I don't know because I don't have a, I don't have a long term applied hypertrophy study of eliminating just the tiny few degrees. So that's conjecture at that point of you know, like all I'm. So if I, if my argument is theoretically, it looks like we could get a little bit, you know better or equal mechanical tension stimulus by maybe reducing the number of reps, but having the tension in those reps, like the amount of stimulus per rep up, then maybe I can reduce the amount of fatigue proxies that are coming in for the same or better stimulus, if that makes sense. How do you know it would be the same or better stimulus? That's my conjecture, right? That's, I mean, as you said, we, we don't know. That's so you don't have any good reason to believe that's the case. Well, I don't have any good reason to believe it's not the case. My good reasons would all be the mechanisms that I just kind of issued is, is that, hey, if the, I'm getting, if the mechanical tension demand is greater during a greater percentage of that rep in the bottom position, and that bottom position is all beneficial for hypertrophy, then I'm doing the mental math of like, hey, if the bottom third is really good and I'm loading more of that bottom third and I'm having to do less of the most extreme, most fatiguing portion of it, then I'm doing that calculation and saying, well, the net then should be a better stimulus to fatigue ratio, right? How do you know the bottom sixth isn't even better than the bottom third? I don't know. I mean, so my, my opinion of saying that somewhere around like a third, um, that's just, that's the correlation of what I can extrapolate from the little bit of research that we do have that's showing, hey, where are people doing these partials? Like the, the, the comparisons that we do have on partial ranges, I'm looking at, okay, and compared to the anatomical muscle length, what, where are these guys working? And it seems to be that basically anything that is within that bottom third seems to be performing pretty well from a hypertrophy stimulus. But we don't have anything that I know of in the research that compares terminal only to bottom third or bottom half, right? So you're basically saying the hack squat banding, um, it- if, if, if you did it to an extreme, it would definitely bias the tension range out of that bottom third. But even with banding, there's still so much effort and so much proximity to failure in that bottom third that you're not too worried about worst case, screwing it up much more than it already is. And best case, it would uh, more of that range would be stimulative uh, versus just biasing the very tiny bottom fraction. Is that, that yeah. kind of what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, okay. Essentially what I'm saying is, is that we're getting, instead of just the bottom, you know, 5% of the range being that's, that's the most loaded. That's where all the stimulus is. I'm saying, Hey, maybe I can get the bottom 30% of the range to be very high stimulatory per rep. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that 
to me is worth the tiny bit of fatigue that I would get from the extra load in the short position, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm making that bet. Sure. So a couple other questions. Um, what, in my experience, failure in the hack squat tends to occur just below parallel. Is that similar in your experience? Yeah. So I think like, and I, and this is something I kind of noticed when I was actually doing the isometrics too, is that there seems to be a little spot below 90 where the coordination between the hips and the knee is the most challenging. Um, and that I think is where probably that fatigue point comes in because since you're relying the most on compensation in that point, as you fatigue, that's probably going to be the, the weak point there. And then in the very, very bottom, even though we're fatiguing from a contractile perspective, like we don't really fatigue passively. So what little bit of, you know, passive assistance that we get out of the very bottom of the hack, that doesn't change that much as, as we fatigue, right? Like if anything, as we're getting more of a pump, we might actually be getting, you know, a tiny bit, you know, it's like having a little bit, little bit more of a, like an air or an air pad or suspension, you know, at the bottom as we're starting to fatigue and through the sets as you're getting more of a pump, but that's going to stay consistent. You're not going to lose that as you fatigue from a contractile standpoint. Sure. Uh, that makes sense. So in, in my very rough, like just visualization of it, if you go from the bottom all the way from the bottom, especially if you're relatively small legs and the calves and hams don't touch just below parallel, this for, for lots of people, maybe most people who train, if they do a deep hack squat and they typically fail close to just below the 90 degree point, or I'm sorry, the close to below the, the parallel point where the quads are parallel to the bottom plate, um, that trajectory from the very bottom all the way up to just below the uh, parallel break, that to me seems like uh, roughly 25 to 30% of the movement. And it seems that if failure occurs at the top end of that, expanding that range does what exactly for us because if we're saying look most of the growth probably or a lot of it comes from that bottom 25 30 percent maybe not bottom five or ten percent uh, but it seems that if the hack squat without banding would be somewhere you failed at the bottom five or ten percent could be like hey like throw some bands on and we fail at the bottom 25 and 30 and our bands gambit pays off but it seems to me that the hack squat unaided you're already failing at about 25 to 30 percent of the way through the bottom rom so you're getting all that's productive anyway. Uh, you're essentially with hack squats being banded, trying to extend that range of motion potentially even further. And if you're not extending it successfully, if it's still 25% with the bands or without the bands, what is the advantage of having the bands if it doesn't actually expand the functional stimulus range uh, at all? Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. So we have to be careful of looking at the whole set under the same conditions that the last rep or two, like of, of when we hit fatigue, right? Because we talked about like the strength profile changes. Right. So in terms of like your ability to create force at the top position is going to get less and less and less because it just gets harder to shorten muscles all the way as you get to fatigue to a greater percentage than the lengthened position. So there's a lot of things that we can do to an exercise and then still end up in the same conditions because the fatigue overrides all of those conditions by the time that we get there. So what we'd be looking at in terms of, okay, with the reverse band, then it would be, it's like, all right, we know we're going to fail there, but can I make it so that that entire 25% 
is a little bit more productive, not just on the last rep, but on all of the reps leading up to that last rep, right? And the- 25% like, would, would be say, less productive, right? Kaz, it would be the rest of the 75 you're making productive with that band because the band takes tension off the bottom 25%. Well, no, it takes, it takes the most tension off of the very bottom, right? But so if you're at the very bottom and you come up 1%, the band has now lost some load, right? So let's say that the bot, like, cause this is the experiment that I did for you guys um, is that let's say that the bottom position is the, the same amount of force, right? Let's say it's whatever, let's say it's 300 pounds. Okay. All right. Once you come up 5%, it's still 300 pounds with no band, right? But with the band now, maybe it's 310 or 300 and whatever, 15, something. These are just random numbers I'm throwing out. But the point is, is that, as soon as you go up 1%, the band is already adding weight. It's not that at 25%, it's the same. It doesn't drop. It doesn't stop there. In fact, the J portion of this curve, right, shows that the increase in resistance occurs the most in the bottom 25%, right? So the band's ability to increase the challenge in that and match it in that bottom 25%, it's actually the greatest there. And then what happens you is you mean you decrease get, the challenge. No, it increases the challenge. So, but, you're, if but the we, band's helping at the bottom. Yes, but we, if you just add enough, so because like if I'm doing, if I'm banding, I don't put a band on and not also add weight. Does that make sense? So, so the the amount of the force requirement at the bottom, we're saying it's equal. Like if the one RM I can do at the bottom of the hack squat for whatever reps is 300 pounds or whatever, I'm going to set it up so that when I put the bands on, that that bottom is going to be 300 pounds or very very close to it, right? Still. Right. So I'm going to use enough additional weight that the bottom load is the same. So then when I start coming up, the reverse banded load will be more than the unbanded load because the reverse band is now helping less. And so since they started at the same point, as you go up, the reverse band is essentially allowing more and more and more of that mass to now be acting on me. So in that, as that 25% comes, the reverse band is getting heavier over that 25%. The no band is staying linear. If they start at the same, it's more force requirement, like more force in the reverse band scenario, right? And the reason that I'm able to tolerate that with the same starting load is because the reverse band is adding the load at the same rate that my quads can tolerate that between the muscle length tension relationship and then the mechanics of the joints and stuff combined. So that's why I'm looking at is that it's still hard there, but over that 25%, it's harder over the course of that 25% respectively in the reverse band than it is no band because it's not just harder at the bottom, it's harder at the 5% and the 10% and whatever up. But the band tension, because it changes the most when it's most stretched, once you start to get past that 25% length, and this is going to vary depending on people's setup, right? Is is that as the band starts to get shorter, it starts changing its tension less, right? So it doesn't keep adding load proportionately the same. It starts adding load fast and then kind of flat lines off, which is why I think the benefit at the bottom exceeds the con of increased fatigue that you would get at the top because your leverages are changing so much faster than the band is adding tension once you get to the top 75%. So uh, you're putting a lot more weight onto the system, which means the axial fatigue is gonna be much higher and your fractional lifting of weight and let's say the top 75% is much higher uh, than it was before. So we know that that might not be as hypertrophic a range 
So in order to the ex- to extend the amount of tension summated over the bottom 25%, you're putting a way more tension on the top 75% with the reverse band setup. And that seems like it would impart a lot of fatigue. So potentially, you know, the fatigue of going through that top 75% coming back down through that 75%. If that's the easy part that I can really grind through that bottom 25% with much more fresh energy. But if I come off of a rep where the concentric of the last rep was really hard all the way through, the eccentric of this current rep is really hard because the top end is loaded so much with reverse banding. Now that I get back into this productive zone, I'm carrying with each rep an accumulated much higher level of fatigue into the next rep. And thus, if we'd say, well, you know, the top half is really more hypertrophic, reverse banding makes a lot more sense than it does in this case, because then, okay, well, at least if it's really hypertrophic, it's worth the fatigue. But this is like making the top part much more fatiguing than it would otherwise be in order to justify maybe a small degree of increased activity in the bottom part, which is like, if the failure proximity occurs at that top 25% anyway, we could probably surmise that the bottom is already very challenging. Uh, Anyway, maybe doesn't need any more help to be more challenging by letting you rock it from that bottom 5% and then go through the rest of the 25%. Like if the bands made that part a little easier, but then didn't change the rest of the movement. Like if we had some kind of cam system where that bottom part was really lengthened out uh, as opposed to being a very sharp curve, that I think could make some sense, but that bottom part's not the only thing paying the cost. The the reverse banding means we have, geez, you know, 700 pounds instead of 500 on our backs the entire time. So that 50% top part, 50% all the way down, gee, even 75% up and 75% down on the eccentric, that's weight we're carrying through a very low stimulus to fatigue ratio part of that lift, or sorry, a very low stimulus part of that lift, upper half, upper two thirds, upper three quarters, that we're paying a really big cost with every single rep to get potentially some longer muscle, uh, more extreme muscle activation at the bottom 25%. We already know that bottom 25% seems to have our best uh, activation stretch under load anyway. Like it, if there was this a really profound realization that, well, gee, you know, after that first 5% of the, the whole, the rest of the 25 or the 20% on the way up of the bottom part, but just really easy. I just kind of ride out of that. They don't think that's the perception of most people. I think that bottom entire quarter until you break past that lockout point of just above parallel, that's the real hard part anyway, making it much harder comes seemingly at a big expense of axial loading. Uh, and and it, to me, it there's an, a question of, okay, we could do this and that would allow us to milk a little bit more out of the bottom, but maybe at a high fatigue cost. Well, why don't we just do this? Why don't we do the reps, let's say normally with no banding and you say, well, you're not getting as much stimulus out of that bottom part, but why don't we just like do more repetitions or do more sets and thus stimulus to fatigue ratio, we're still because it seems like the hack squat with no banding still biases the vast majority of its loading and failure proximity uh, and limit muscular activity at that bottom 25% anyway. And probably not at a, sh- a much shorter point, because if it was much shorter, we would see failure occur 10% up into the movement, not 25% like we really see it. So if it's already very well biased to the bottom, why don't we just do more sets or more reps uh, of normal hack squats, pay no extra fatigue cost from that top end loading and get the same amount of bottom end loading with less fatigue. That's kind of my thing. So if, if I'm, if I uh, basically from a, a more human perspective, if I'm doing reverse band or regular band hack squats, 
and, and you're asking me, hey, do you feel like you get more time to exert your max tension? Are you challenged more through the bottom part, bottom 25%? I'd be like, a little bit, yeah, a little bit more challenged in the bottom 25%, but then the top 75% is way more challenge up and down. And that seems to be the much more shift of the focus of the movement. So ostensibly, we're trying to expand the bottom 25% of the lift difficulty because that's the most productive part. And I think that your hack squat setup does actually succeed in making it a little bit more hard at that bottom 25%. But the cost is making it way harder for the top 75% up and down. And that to me would seem like if I got, let's say, where there is a uh, uh, a sum total of a certain amount of work done at the bottom. Let's call it a hundred units of work done in a regular hack squat from all the way in the bottom to the, to the 25% mark to the barely uh, just uh, almost uh, parallel mark. So let's say call it a hundred units of work are, are done at that point. If I do 10 repetitions with just whatever amount of weight, I have a, a thousand total units of work in that very beneficial area. I think with your banding setup, if we just look at that bottom 25%, each repetition can maybe get us 125 units of work or something like that, maybe 110, maybe 150. More work at the bottom for sure, because the, the band kicks in right when that stretch comes out and you got to really grind through all the way. My suspicion is that the fatigue imposed by the top 75% of additional band tension plus load or whatever way you want to categorize it, that fatigue is so high that it may result in that set uh, going to failure uh, you know, at uh, a work equated seven repetitions as opposed to uh, 10 repetitions. So instead of summing a thousand units of work down at that bottom, because the bottom part of the hack squat is the hard part. You go in, you get a free ride at the top sort of, or more free ride, it's easy. You get a free ride on the, on the eccentric 75%. So it's kind of almost a break. So you could potentially do 10 reps because you get a little mini break within each rep and you get a thousand units of very beneficial work at the bottom. If we're using that hack squat model where you band the squat, the entire, each rep becomes way harder to do because it's, you're being pushed closer to your limits that entire time. The muscles don't have a chance to break, which is good. But on the other hand, it saps your energy so much that you may only get to six or seven repetitions of that. And six or seven times 110 or 125, that maybe doesn't equal a thousand. So if we're looking at the beneficial part of the movement, I think the hacks setup uh, that you're talking about, if somehow the bands kicked in at the bottom and kicked out completely as soon as 25 or 30% was hit, making that top easier. And then you come back in and they kick in again and kick out that may have some, uh, again, that whole, what does that curve at bottom 25% look like? That's a different discussion. Is it really maybe the bottom 5% is even better in the top 10% a little worse, top 15, a little worse, et cetera. But even if we assume it's one giant block of everything below 25% is equivalently hypertrophic, I think that the hack squat setup when you band it, makes the top 75% so much harder. It saps your ability to get as much quality work in the real world, not in any one unit rep. At any one unit rep, it works really well. But in multiple reps summed over a set or multiple sets summed over, the amount of energy you're expending in the less hypertrophic part, which is the top 75%, is adding to fatigue that prevents you from getting as much quality work done in as much of a unit time in the bottom part. Let me, let me know if that makes sense. So... I tried to steel man that position um, in an experiment that we did uh, last year. Um, so if you'll, if you're willing to accept 
uh, like volume load as a proxy for how much fatigue the the two different or the two different variations are producing. Meaning that like okay, if I'm getting more fatigue from the reverse banded one, then I should be able to, like I shouldn't be able to do the the same volume load, right? I should fatigue early. And we looked at comparing that load based off of what the load was at twenty five. I'm not willing to accept it as a proxy. Okay, I'm, All right. well, because the volume load counts the top part too. So yes, you're so counting. That's why we calculated we be counting it, it as much. based off of the different positions, so that we could compare volume load based off of the 20, the weight that the reverse band was at 25, 50, 70, and then average bottom half, average top half, and average throughout the the whole rep. Right. So we broke down the data in a bunch of different ways to be able to look at that. Right. So if we take the simplest point, which is let's shoot at the 50% mark. So let's say that the load that we attribute the um, the reverse band to is the it's about it's about it's about the parallel, about the 90 degree mark. Right. If we use that one. Okay. So we were able to get pretty much the same volume load before people fatigued using the reverse band as the regular hack, right? And that's where it's like, okay, so I don't think that the added fatigue is is, is impacting the performance that much. I think it was only it's something like four to 5% difference in volume load, which was like, you know, with the amount of loads and stuff that we were using, it was basically like the equivalent of like, you know, a fifth of a rep or something difference between the, the two protocols. So if I'm looking at what's going on in that, bottom 25%. And I'm looking at this as like, okay, the the work that I'm doing is like almost 99% aligned with what my capabilities are, what the capacity of the work that I could do. But then once I get to the top 75%, like the very top percent, right? The work that I'm doing is now not, it's like not even 50% of what I could do. Right. So to, to, so that people have a perspective of magnitude on these, right. So my, the, the, the set that I, that I put in there for comparison was a, a top set of four for me at the end of my session. Right. And, you know, on my hack squad or whatever, which is like 30 something degrees or whatever, it's nine plates per side, two bands on there. Right. Um, and so the bottom load is like something around like, you know, 340 pounds or something is that's, 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 that's what, that's the amount of force at the bottom. Right. And then it increases 160 pounds as I get to lockout. Right. So there's 160 pound difference between the top position and the bottom position for me. Right. Now the difference in my strength profile from the bottom position to the top position, the bottom is still, the same, but the top is like three to four times the magnitude. So while the band might be giving me, you know, a little less than a 50% increase in resistance over that period, my strength capacity is going up, you know, 400%, right? So like the force that I can produce at the top was well over, was well over 1100 pounds, right? Like I exceeded the tools that I had to be able to measure at that point in time. Right. But the, the weight with the reverse band only took me up to like 510 or something like that. 350 is 160. That's 510. Right, Steve, you're do the checking my math here. Um, so if I'm looking at how, how big of an impact we're having at the bottom position versus how big of an impact we're having at the top position, it's like, I'm looking at like, all right, 
what I'm, I'm moving the needle so much more in terms of matching the stimulus in that bottom 25% than I am moving the needle in terms of increasing the fatigue demand there, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's how I look at it. And I don't think that there's a point where either one of us are going to be able to definitively prove the other wrong. I mean, we're both speculating on what mostly is going to be our interpretation of the research and our personal anecdote applying, applying these things. And I don't think anybody from a hypertrophy standpoint is going to be bad off using either protocol, as long as like the caveat would be is that if you use something like a, a reverse band and you use a ton of band and don't accommodate it with the weight, then you could then, so there is the potential that you could screw it up. So if you wanted to say, you know, if you wanted me to steel man the argument for don't reverse band, it would be that, well, there is a chance that you could screw up, screw up the loading profile, applying a reverse band by just over banding it for the amount of weight. Whereas if you just leave it alone, right? Well, I guess you could still screw it up because you could use bad technique and, you know, all that other stuff, but those things also come along with the, with the band as well. So I would say, that's probably the one thing where I can say for sure, if you just leave it alone and you use good technique, well, at least, you know, you're not going to be screwing up the regular hack, but if you're, if you pay attention to, to how it feels and you compare it to your, your previous lifts, et cetera, whatever, um, I would say at this point in time, the best thing that I can offer is when I look at what the research shows and when I look at the numbers and I apply the experience that I have and what we're coaching with is as I say, hey, if we use the band appropriately, this seems to be a tool that I see as giving a better stimulus to fatigue ratio. But I can also see that the opposite would be true if you used an inappropriate amount of banding and it was people were them doing proportionately way more work at the top and it was easier at the bottom, right? Because I don't think that if you band it appropriately, it's not a significant amount of axial load. Like for me, the, the increase in loading at the top, like even on that top set of four, like I cruise through the bottom 25% of that. I mean, I feel the weight on my shoulders clearly, right? Like that I can perceive that it is more load than if I wasn't using the band, but it's not in any way like, oh, this is really compressive or, or really hard. Like I'm still very, very thankful once I get to 75% out of the hole there. And it's like, okay, I can just cruise through the top half of this. That's at the ratio that I'm using, right? And I can't compare that to your perception because I don't know how much band to weight that you've used or used in the past, right? And that's a problem with sometimes with these machines where people have to wrap the bands like all the way around the machines is that the band is now having a very different profile than if they banded it like appropriately for the amount of stretch that those bands are meant to use for. And if you want to do the, the example that you gave, which is where the band would be active in the 25% and then essentially drop off to nothing. I mean, essentially all you got to do is put, you just got to figure out what distance that that band needs to be stretched for. And I would argue that that is essentially what I'm doing and that I'm setting like the machine that we actually use it. We designed it so that that bottom 25% would be, that would be where the band's peak point was. And then, I mean, it would only add a insignificant amount the rest. The reason that it, we didn't do just the bottom and then nothing is it does create the issue where it's like, then there's slack in something underneath. And then you have the logistical problem of could the band fall off or the strap fall off or it could get snagged on something or the equipment companies don't like anything where somebody could, you know, win a Darwin award by sticking their hand or their foot in something and then it closes or, or whatever, right? They get mad at me all the time. And I'm like, can we make it do this? And I'm like, no, we can't. Cause then, you know, people do human things and lose limbs sure, and stuff. Sure. <laughs> So, so you're um, trying to use banding, reverse banding, 
to allow people to accentuate the bottom 25% even more than it is currently accentuated. Yes. Do you right. get the perception that hack squats are under accentuated in the bottom 25%? Is that a, is that a, a sensation that lifters have reported to you or that you've noticed in your own training? I get, I get the sensation that they're just slightly over accentuated in the bottom, you know, like 5% is what I would say. Right. Especially where, if we're looking at the, would whole, occur? the whole set. Isn't that where failure would occur? If there was slight overaccentuation in that bottom 5%, but failure doesn't occur there, it occurs at the top of the 25%. Wouldn't that mean that the, the point from the bottom all the way to that 25% is probably really close to maximum ability? Uh, because to, that's look at, to look at that context, what you would have to do is you would have to look at failure outside of fatigue, which would mean what you'd have to do is you would have to put people on and just have them do consecutive 1RMs starting with weight that they couldn't lose and then see the first time that they could move it up and then progressively how they would be able to go up. Cause once fatigue is introduced, that strength curve is then changing. Right. So that means that, you know, if we take, if you take any other exercise, like uh, let's, 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 let's look at a, a bench press, for example, right. You know, bench press is very easy to, to look at, you know, your elbows are, you know, away from your shoulders at the bottom and they stack over your shoulders as you go towards your, towards the top, regardless of whether you, your elbows down, elbows out, et cetera, however you press. Right. So we know from a resistance profile that that's accentuated at the bottom. Right. And it gets very easy at the top. Okay. But when you fatigue in the bench, you don't ever get to the point where you bring the bar to your chest and then it just stays there. Everybody gets it up like three or four inches. They get to where almost like, you know, maybe the humerus is parallel or just a little past parallel to their torso and they get that partial rep and then it comes back down. Right. And that's because the fatigue in that short position starts to accumulate, even though that they were stronger there and eat. So they're getting stuck in a position where if they were fresh mechanically, they would have been able to push through it. But because the way that fatigue changes our strength profile is that it meets us to the point where we end up getting stuck in something that is not completely lengthened. Right. And so the same thing is happening here in the hack, you know, and a variety of other exercises. So unless you're at such a weight threshold, like you're doing really, really low reps, it's the, basically the higher reps, the lighter load, the more likely that the fatigue is going to be the thing that influences the failure point than just the weight and the physics of that alone. Right. So as you get closer to failure, you're actually uh, asked to try even harder through the bottom position than you would before. The first few reps you can kind of get from the bottom 5% and as soon as you're out, you're good. But the fatigue draws that basically the as you fatigue more that bottom 25 percent requires more and more of your maximum ability to contract the entire 25 percent it would it would be the opposite you're getting asked the work becomes harder in the shorter 25 percent as you fatigue right we we always muscles always fatigue more at the short position faster than they do right that the length which the means it simulates the bands the more and more reps that you do raw the, the, your, your, your muscles vo voluntary activity at a very fatigued raw repetition start to look a lot like they would if you had put on bands to begin with. Yeah. So, I mean, so you could look at it one ways is like, I'm trying to make the resistance profile match closer to what our most effective rep profile. If we're looking at the effective reps occurring later in the set would be, you know, as well. Sure. And you don't have any stimulus to fatigue concerns with that because earlier you said that you had some stimulus to fatigue concerns with going close to failure and stuff. 
Well, the, the, it's just, is, the, is there a point of diminishing returns, you know, between taking, you know, between going to failure and being one rep away. And so I was just correlating that to, is there a point of diminishing returns between, okay, if I can essentially increase the volume of stimulus that I'm getting by making each rep more stimulus, then that's less volume that I have to spend in the extreme stretch position that may be a little bit lower stimulus to fatigue ratio. Right. So what I'm saying is we don't know that instead of the bottom 5%, right. What if 10 to 15% has a better stimulus to fatigue ratio than the bottom 5% in terms of stimulus and fatigue. Right. And, and we like, we don't have anything to know. So could, it could be right. But the pro I know the proxies for soreness and force production are greatest in the most stretch position. So I don't think that where there's going to likely be a scenario where the fatigue and the 10% is going to be more than the very stretch position, right? I don't, so, I don't see any evidence that would suggest that, but I do see evidence to suggest that it could be the other way. So when lifting is effective, it seems to have those same proxies versus when it's a lot less effective. So for example, if you show me how to train without any stretch and I go very low volume, and I don't approach failure very closely, the time to force recovery is shorter and the perception, the perception of onset, delayed onset soreness is also lower. When I go deeper into the stretch, when I do more volume, when I get closer to failure, I get a lot of time to recovery, much more. And also my DOMS is higher. In addition to that, if I'm a beginner lifter, I get more of those DOMS and soreness, uh, sorry, DOMS and recovery time expands. So seeing the DOMS and recovery time being higher, you could see it as an indicator of higher fatigue, but could it not also be seen as an indicator of higher stimulus? Because everything that is seemingly very stimulative tends to cause more DOMS and tends to cause a greater, uh, so like one of our stimulus proxies that we use at RP, for example, is how much fatigue are you accumulating from set to set to set? Like mm -hmm. if you can successfully train for four sets and have the same performance after four as you did after one, we're pretty convinced you're stimulated absolutely nothing because if you're stimulating a lot of gains that way and you're paying no fatigue cost, that's quite a curious, uh, you know, uh, infinity magic box of stimulus. So it seems that because the more stimulative things correlationally, like accumulating lots of metabolites, being of a young training age, going very, very deep stretch, going closer to failure, increasing volume loads, changing exercises. Those tend to correspond to greater times of recovery and to higher amounts of fatigue, uh, of delayed onset soreness, et cetera. So when we see that the bottom five or 10% really uh, exaggerate how much time to fatigue uh, or how much time to recovery we need and really exaggerate how much soreness we get, couldn't that be seen as like, wow, that means they're even more stimulative than we thought. Because if at the bottom five or 10%, what we got instead was a lot more joint and connective tissue disruption and not a whole lot else. It just kind of feels a little painful and not much else is happening. And we don't get really big muscle pumps. We don't get big soreness. We don't, muscle doesn't take long to recover. Then we could suspect, oh yeah, that bottom five to 10%, that's mostly passive uh, connective tissue work. And that doesn't actually stimulate a whole lot anymore. So the way I see it is you're bringing up the fact that the DOMS is higher and the fatigue recovery is more difficult with the very extreme range of motion. That to me says maybe the very extreme range of motion is even more stimulative than we thought. What would you say to that as a, as a, what do you think about that? 
I mean, it's it's possible that it's more more stimulatory, right? But then again, I mean, if we're talking the ratio, it's like, but is is that is that is that mute because the fatigue and the stimulus are both going up in equal proportions? So it could be the same, or it could be one rate. The ratio could be one direction or the other. We don't have data to say that for sure, which is why I'm not going to ever advocate that like we eliminate. The very lengthened position because i'm like for sure there's stimulus down there but i just don't know how much the ratio between cost and benefits changes there for sure we, we don't have that data yet we use anecdote and honestly i mean we actually use phases where we will focus more on that with the intention of all right we're going to adjust volume and the degree of failure and how many days between repeating the muscle or whatever knowing that those are going to be coming across or we be a part of that. And you can also like, if we just leave the hypertrophy perspective, then we're looking at, well, okay, what do these positions, how do they influence the, the passive structures and the connective tissue and the, the non-contractile things like tighten or whatever? Because it could be that there are benefits in that more stretch position from a non-myofibular level that makes that important, right? You know, as, as, as well, right? So it's, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns here. So like I said, I don't think we're going to leave this with a, uh, this is for sure this, and this is for sure not. But what I would say is, is that if I'm looking at that, you know, I think both are valid options and maybe the, which, which one you choose, it's not just your preference, but it's also like, well, how soon do I want to train again? How much volume do I want to do? What's my individual, you know, response to these two? Cause let's say that if I reverse ban something, you know, I can get X amount of good quality sets. I get all of your, you know, I get all the positive proxies, you know, of the pump and the fatigue and disruption or whatever. And I do the other version and, you know, it's slightly incomparable or my, the time that it takes me to get back to being able to train again is slightly different or whatever. Then it's like, all right, my goal is to train this again in four days. One of these might be a better option than the other, or I'm, my goal is to be able to use this much volume. One of these might be the other. So I think we know, so we, the, the answer is so unclear that I think, you know, I think that you can kind of use these tools as one, just novelty, but also just how do these affect my tolerance to volume and recovery? And could I choose the tool that would then allow me to achieve that or to achieve the, the split that I want, you know, or the volume, et cetera, that I want? Could I use these to kind of just turn some knobs to individualize my program a little bit more? Couldn't you do that individualization with set numbers instead? You could do it with a lot of things. You could do it with sets. You could do it with the relative average RPE. I mean, why would you take, sure. Why would you spend time adjusting the banded condition and try to uh, figure out where the forces are highest and lowest? It takes a lot of work to band a squat or band a hack squat, much more work than simply doing one fewer set. So if I have to heal in four days, I can think of myself, I can either take some time and thought and effort and set up to ban the hack squat and do three sets. Or I can simply do two sets of hack squat unbanded and get the same stimulus fatigue paradigm, the same, at least the same fatigue paradigm heal on time without much of the complication. And that, that's kind of an open question to you, Cass, is like, to what extent do you think the extra work of banding an apparatus, being that all the benefits are very hypothetical, to what extent do you think it's worth it, especially for regular gym goers, you know, yeah. like, uh, would you put a band, would you recommend people yeah. put a band in the backpack and get that done? Or do you think that maybe modulating stimulus by the number of sets 
or the proximity yeah. to failure is perhaps more practical. I mean, this always comes down to an individual of, you know, what's worth the effort and, and again, all of the, all of the other preference things in there. But I mean, it's absolutely thoughtless for, and takes no time and no effort for me and my conditions to do it. Cause I'm going to the same machine, the bands are there. And I like, I know the, based off of how much load I'm going to use, like how much band I'm going to done because it's not day one. Now, day one, when I'm trying to figure out like, okay, how much band do I need versus how much load am I going to put on or whatever? Yeah, that's going to take a little bit more time. But as long as I'm going back to the same machine, now it's very simple, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put on the load, put on a little bit more load than I did last time and the same amount of banding, right? And then when I get to a certain amount, you know, or a certain increment that I've increased the weight, then maybe it's like, all right, now I'll increase the amount of band and the weight even a little bit more, find that next sweet spot and then progress from there. So like the amount of time and effort initially in that very first session or two that you're trying to figure it out, yeah, that might be a little bit higher. But after that, it actually takes significantly less time than doing another set because it's, I mean, it takes the time that it takes me to literally walk to the back of the machine, pick something up. I'm doing it here in real time. Yeah, about that about that much time, right? And so like, cause I know like, all right, at five plates, I'm using a blue band and then I add one band per per plate or whatever that I, that I go up. How would you know, that, know, how, would you know what, how much to end? How, how would you know how much to add to make sure that that bottom end is getting milked out as much as possible? And it's not too easy or too hard. That would itself require a bit of uh, on the fly, a continual updating, right? Like experimentation. Yeah. So I, so the, the intuitive way that I do it is I look at my rep speed, right? So coming out of there, right. Is, is that basically what I'm looking at is what that reverse band does is just slows that bottom 25%, but then I still, you know, cruise up the rest of it. I, Steve, I think we were talking about this on the podcast. It's like, you, you, you find that feel where it's like, it's basically, it's almost like the reverse band is just slowing the momentum that you can generate a little bit more in that bottom 25%, but it's still hardest at in that bottom 25%, right? I'm never going to add enough band that all of a sudden it feels like the hardest point is in the middle of the rep, right? So that's kind of how, how I look at it is, is like you go by the perception of perception of the how the difficulty feels through the range, but then you also just look at the rep speed, right? Because if it, if it looks like you're flying out of a hole and then slowing down, well, then that's way too much banding, right? But if it's like you grind, you grind just a slight bit more and then start to accelerate in the top 75%, well, then I think that's you, your band tension then is getting close to it's, it's applying a good change to the profile in that bottom 25% that you want. And then it's an insignificant amount of resistance in the rest of it because you're able to really accelerate the rep speed in that top 75%. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. So if I had to red team your position, it would be you're using a lot of uh, thought and effort and setup in order to get a little bit more out of the bottom 25%, uh, but we don't know what that force curve is. Theoretically, we have no good reason to believe the bottom 25% is um, the more hypertrophic versus the bottom 10 or 15, and the stimulus and fatigue dynamics uh, may end up you know, sort of not great, whereas the top half or top 75% still ekes out enough fatigue out of you to make that whole setup not worthwhile stimulus and fatigue. That would be the red teaming. And the, the steel manning of that would be, well, just with a few easy uh, band attachments and some just normal progression, monitoring rep speed, we can 
actively make the bottom 25 or 30% hard the entire way through versus just at the very bottom. And thus, with a minimum amount of effort, we can get a little bit of a better stimulus to fatigue ratio because now that super productive bottom 25%, instead of the bottom five or 10 being the big challenging part, then it's actually challenged through the entire time. And that top end isn't fatiguing enough for us to have to worry about poisoning the stimulus to fatigue ratio. Is that uh, that decent uh, steel manning of that, Cass? I think so. I mean, like I said, I, I, I think, I think on both sides of those things, you said some things that like, like, cause I don't think we have evidence to say that for sure it's going to be more fatiguing proportionally at the top. Right. And just like, I also don't think we have evidence. What well, has sure to be right. It's, it's more, more stimulus. At the top. But you, this magnitude is important here. Right. I mean, if a fly lands on the top, on the top half of the hack squat, is that, is that, Technically yes. more fatiguing, yes, yes but magni magni magnitude matters, right? So if it's an insignificant Why? amount of extra fatigue, then since that's well, that's so also that's an saying, insignificant amount of extra stimulus. It, you you could make that argument too. That's why I'm saying there's 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 things on both sides of the scale that I don't think that we can speak that definitively about, right? Sure. I would say sure. from what I see in the research, I can see that look as we get towards the bottom fifty percent, it looks like comparatively we get a better hypertrophy stimulus. I know we see that in exercises that don't include the fully lengthened position. And I would argue like, you know, if we talk practical, like how many exercises do you think that you do actually fully lengthen the muscle or also, and, and how many of those then also compoundly have a biased resistance profile there, right? So if, if we take an exercise like the lap prayer, right? So the lap prayer accentuates the short position. It proportionately makes the short position significantly harder, right? It shifts the resistance profile. So if you were going to, if you were going to use that, that argument, like that would be about as crappy of an exercise as you could get because the, you produce a tremendous amount of fatigue there in that short position relative to the stretch position, right? You know, so there's a lot of instances where. But with banding, and, and that I, would become a worse exercise still. The magnet, like, I don't think so. I think the, I think the benefit well, it has that you to get be right bottom, because then the bottom, it would be even easier. Right. Well, no, like, cause in this instance, because it doesn't or, or change the, the top profile is even easier and the bottom would be even harder. Like, so if you banded it, the only way bands work is making the top harder. Oh, you mean in, if you banded the lap prayer? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it would make yes. It worse. If you banded the lap prayer, it would make it even it would make it even worse. Absolutely. Right. So yeah. why do we have any good supposition to think of hack squatting working in a fundamentally different way? The band well, because the, it's just a more extreme version of that exercise. Well, because in the instance of the lap prayer, you have an exercise that's already hardest in the short position that you're making even more hard in the short position, right? And in the instance of a hack squat, you have an exercise that's very it's, lengthy. It's harder bias. in the short position. The lap prayer is no. harder in the short. Yeah, the, well, the resistance profile is significantly greater. Where it's hard is going to be technique dependent on you know how much what your body orientation is, how much how much you move your body through that versus how far you stand away from the cable, et cetera. So, I don't want to get into like this is exactly how it will be because it will fluctuate based off a of person's technique a little bit. But yes, the resistance pro. So basically, with the, when the cable is parallel to your arm, that's when it's providing the most resistance right so if so, so so if this, if this is my arm or perpendicular i'm sorry perpendicular yeah okay right yeah so so if at the bottom position like you're standing up and you're pushing that down to make the the cable more perpendicular to your arms when you're in the top position of the lap prayer 
right? More, more, more parallel. More, it's more perpendicular. Like the whole point of standing up is to make the short position more because if you, if you well, just have to stand up, up a lot to do that, right? I think maybe the standing up and coming through makes it a little bit more difficult. But it, like if you could do a lap prayer where you didn't stand up, the problem, the only reason I stand up is it hits me in the face if I don't stand up. So I stand up as little as possible so that it doesn't hit me in yeah. the face. If I could have some kind of setup where it didn't hit me in the face, I would absolutely not stand up because I don't want that extra top part to be hard. I want the, the bottom, the stretch to be the hardest, right? So yeah, like, well, you could just uh, step away a little bit then instead. You just step back and then it wouldn't hit you. I have a really big head, Cavs. I don't know if that works <laughs> enough. <laughs> yeah, and it's close I'm, to the I'm ground. Like, and a, all like that. a Gerber baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, so if we take, I mean, we could take a variety of exercises if you don't want to use that example. I mean, flexion curls would be an example where it's just like, all right, we're accentuating the short position or whatever, right? So, I mean, it's, I so think maybe flexion curls are not a good idea because of that. I think the problem with flexion curls has more to do with the change in recruitment than it does the fact that you would just be going shortened because I mean, it all depends on what we're comparing it to and, and what the goal is. Right. So I, I want, I want people to know that I don't think that this means that you should never do an exercise in the short position, even if your goal is hypertrophy, because I think there are, you know, neurological and orthopedic benefits to doing those, but your volume should definitely shift. So like our rule generally is, is like in hypertrophy phase, about 70% of your volume is going to be partitioned to exercises that are biasing the length and half of the range of motion. And the resistance is going to be somewhat biased over there too, to somewhat match that. And then if we're focusing on more of a, you would call it a metabolite type phase is that we would kind of flip that on its head and 70% of your volume would be spent on things that you know, focus on more, more shortening of the muscle or et cetera. Why? why do we do this switch or mm -hmm. why do we not, why do we not eliminate it? Why do you do completely? the switch? Why do we do the switch? Well, I mean, if my goal is hypertrophy, I'm going to bias my volume towards the exercises that seem to have a higher hypertrophy stimulus. Right. And if I'm biasing, if I'm going for metabolic training, well, then I'm going to do the things that are going to have the least amount of fatigue factors in terms of frequency and produce the most metabolic type stimuli, you know, you so short metabolites. Okay. I yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you meant metabolites as a driver of hypertrophic outcomes. You meant metabolites as a driver of like our work capacity or something like that. Yeah. Like, so yeah. So uh, as a driver of the ability to resist metabolites, like buffering capacity. Yeah. So you, you could have it as, it's like, all right, the goal is increased sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and nutrient partitioning and overall conditioning and, you know, volume tolerance, like all of those things come from just having the energy production of your muscle cells being better. Right. So we're training the, like mitochondria athlete, and the enzymes instead of the contractile fiber. No, I think for hypertrophy athletes as well, because I think being better conditioned at a muscular level improves your tolerance to volume. Right. So it allows you to accrue, it allows you to, you know, accrue more stimulus when you're doing, when you're on, on the flip side of that and focusing on exercises that aren't. So we will, we will, we will sprinkle in small, like what you would call metabolite type phases over a, over a longer meso. So like, for example, it might be like, all right, you got like four or six weeks or whatever that you're focusing on pure mechanical tension. And then you might take a week or two that you focus on more of a metabolic type stimulus. Right. And then what we see is that when people go back, you know, everything from their base health markers, but basically they're just their ability to maintain performance and tolerate volume tends to, tends to go up when they, why when is they that a benefit? Down. Why is that a benefit? Well, if the goal is to be able to get as much stimulus as possible, recover from that, and then do it again, right? Then 
I see that as a benefit over time of being able to actually achieve more stimulus and adaptation over time. Like if we take this out a little bit to the extreme to illustrate a point, if you take an individual who's used to lifting and you let's say switch them to a protocol of uh, maybe some lifting, maybe some cycling, maybe some elliptical, maybe even some running. And instead of focusing on lifting in the hypertrophy range, you increase the amount of contractile time of that muscle per any unit set to something in the two to three minute range versus in the typical 40, 30 second to one minute range you see in hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Now you're basically training them more like, uh, you know, uh, an 800 meter runner or something like that. What is typically evident in that is they get some fiber conversion from faster to slower twitch activity, and they um, get a lot of endurance uh, pathway activity, MPK. They get a suppression of mTOR activity, and they build up quite a bit of fatigue. And then so what ends up happening is that that sort of training actually makes them less responsive to hypertrophy afterwards because it makes them more behave more like an endurance runner, just marginally. So like if you take someone who's an elite endurance athlete, you throw them in the squat rack, they can do sets of 10 in, in the squat to near muscular failure over and over for the 30 or 40 sets. They don't bat their eye because their endurance is so unbelievable. The problem is they get very little hypertrophic stimulus from that because those super powerful endurance pathways like MPK have uh, become ultra dominant and the uh, hypertrophy pathways are very non-dominant. And as a matter of fact, the way to make the hypertrophy pathways more dominant is periods of active rest. Uh, which have been shown to increase uh, faster fiber uh, conversion, and they you you get ultra sore, and your volume uh, uh, abilities to generate volume are really crap after that. But your per unit of volume hypertrophic stimulus goes up a ton, so you actually don't have to do as much work to get as as jacked. Whereas if you do a lot of metabolite work, as you're describing it, performance metabolite work, the ability to handle more, you just need more volume to get an even smaller hypertrophy response. That's my reading of the literature. What, what would you say to that, Kaz, just off the top of your head? Um, well, two things. One, I, I would put this analogy of like, we're in the car changing gears. And I would say the the example that you gave is me just like opening up the door and jumping out of the car altogether to like doing so. So we're not, we're not taking people and then like going full endurance mode. What we're looking at is like, we're shifting towards different types of exercises and maybe using shorter rest intervals you know, something like, like a Vince Gironda type protocol with an exercise that's biased towards a short position would be an example of us doing what we would call like an AMPK bias, like training phase. Right. And we're talking about doing this for one to two weeks. Right. So essentially look at it as, is like, we're trying to do this as a way of accomplishing, you know, a deload from certain types of stress and then introducing something that would be performance and recovery enhancing as well. But we're not, we're not doing a long block of endurance training that's going to massively shift somebody's internal enzyme production. They shift it enough to get to the, the desires you want, right? That shifts enough to get you something that you can measure or something real yeah. in training, somewhere where you can do more reps. So clearly the enzymes are doing something, right? Like you're better endurance, something had to change. Well, I don't, so from a physiological standpoint, I'm not sure, I'm not sure um, where we'll align on, on what's going on at a molecular level, but like, so we're training, we're doing a tons of hypertrophy training. We're going to get, we're going to get increased ribosome count and density and stuff like that. We're going to get, uh, you know, different adaptations in the endoplasmic reticulum that are going to make us better at responding to that. But part of that is actually being able to support those mechanisms with energy, right? And the whole play between mTOR and AMPK, right? This is like, we don't, like, it's not that we become, we don't become long-term dominant in those. Those are always 
you know, a, a tug of war, right? So sure. when we look at the way that we adapt meta, like to a metabolic stress, we always tend to adapt up and down really, really fast because it's immediate. It's an energy requirement. It's like all the evolutionary reasons, like we change to those really fast, but the things that are more chronic, like the hypertrophy enzymes and stuff like that, those tend to climb slower and go away much slower, right? If, if we look at those things. Um, so when we jump out and we're like, okay, all we're trying to do is improve our ability to create energy, maybe store a little bit more glycogen, et cetera. And we can do that in a very short window of time and then jump back into hypertrophy training. And it, you know, we're either at the same level or it takes us maybe like one week to get back to where we were. And because we shifted enough, what we tend not to see is, is that we tend not to see that we need to increase volume. It tends to be that we can actually get more out of less volume because we accomplished both a, a deload by kind of not doing some stresses at one time, but we also improved our health and a little bit of our performance and recovery on one side, right? And so then when we go back, what we find is, is that, okay, maybe at most we have one week where we're, you know, maybe like not hitting the same loads or whatever, but by week two, like if we're looking at progressive overloading over a long term, is that we are back or better than where we were, but we're in a position now where it's the same volume. We seem to recover and being able to progressively overload faster like we were earlier in the meso, right? So it's like, we're getting the benefit of a deload. And then I'm also getting people to stay a little bit leaner, you know, stay in a little bit better shape, you know, cardio wise, health wise, et cetera, sleep improvements, things like that. Like, I mean, there, as a bodybuilder, there is something to be said, um, you know, and you've worked with a ton of people. I've worked with a ton of people. There is something to be said where maintaining a certain level of health and conditioning is, is important, right? Like if it gets below a certain level, that starts becoming a bottleneck for performance, growth, and just quality of life, you know, in general. Sure. Doesn't that improve though over the weeks? Like if you're doing more sets and more reps and more load, doesn't your conditioning improve over the weeks outside of the effects of fatigue? I, I mean, I think it's going to be very relative to what that program looks like. You do, you do a lot of high reps in your training. So you're probably, you're getting probably a lot more metabolic demand out of some of the high rep sets that you do, like even in your hypertrophy blocks, whereas we tend not to, we tend to have more of a, we'll say a constrained rep range in our hypertrophy blocks, right? Like we're not using, you know, 15, the 15 through 30 reps very, very often, right? It's like, okay, we're using more in the, we'll say six to 12 rep range typically, right? I mean, it's N of one, right? So, I mean, it's, it depends on the individual, but we kind of utilize that so that we can intentionally periodize those two things that are a little bit more distal to each other from a stimulus and stress perspective, right? So rather than having, you know, rather than training over a wide rep range, within a single program or a single workout, we will tend to periodize back and forth between the two more often. All right. Nothing else, Mike? Uh, you know, nothing on this topic uh, so far. <laughs> I know it, yeah. the, the, that periodization reminds me a little bit of the Max Muscle Plan uh, by Brad Schoenfeld. I know he has like a, for the same reasons, that metabolite phase to improve conditioning going into hypertrophy phase after a strength phase. I think that's the way it mm -hmm. ends up periodizing within his book. Um, interesting. Nonetheless, I don't know if you guys want to talk any more about resistance profiles, strength, uh, strength curves, that sort of thing. Or did you feel like you 
mentioned all the points you wanted to regarding the hack squat particularly or is there anything else you wanted to kind of cover there I mean, I think it'd be good if we kind of end a bit with a, a bit of a position in practical, like just, I mean, because we talked a lot Absolutely. about like, we, we we spent a lot of time, kind of like the first time that we talked, where we talked a lot about things that matter like like this much, but we were talking about them like this big, um, you know, and so I think it's important to hit back that like, I don't think that if you reverse band a hack squat, let's say if I'm completely wrong and Mike's completely right, I don't think that if you reverse band hack squat that all of a sudden like you're gonna like your legs are gonna shrivel down to chickens or anything like that. Um, and I don't think that if you do the regular band hack squat that not reverse banding it is going to be the thing that is gonna prevent you from building world class legs, right? So at the end of the day, I think we have so many buttons and knobs that we can push to make things feel better look better. And until we have data, I'm not going to come out and be like, it's, it's this way. Anecdotally, we find it beneficial for a variety of reasons and we utilize it, but we don't not utilize regular hack squat. We just, we just use both tools, right? We, we use both tools. Um, social media has a, has a way to make it always seem like the thing that you do is the most novel things, because that's always the thing that gets the most exposure, right? Like if I, if I post a post that's something novel, and then I post a post of something that's just like plain, simple, you know, standard of, you know, this is what we do. Five people will see that. And 5,000 people will see like the novel weird thing or whatever. And that's, sure. that's just a cost of that. And I think if we apply, if, if, you, if you look at this outside of the context of just a hack squat is, and Mike, you, maybe this is where you can provide the, like the best summation here in terms of where you agree is, is that if our goal is like, we're focusing on a mechanical tension based hypertrophy phase, right? Is that we are going to choose exercises that use more of the lengthened portion of the range of motion, right? And they're going to have a resistance profile that's challenging somewhere in that bottom half. But I don't think that you need to like get a nosebleed trying to match any force curves or anything like that. I mean, it, with, you know, the, the number of people that like look at this stuff and like, like, for example, there, there's this video out there of one group putting a uh, luggage scale and trying to weigh your hack squat machine to figure out like how much band tension or whatever. And, you know, and doing that for all the machines and stuff. And I'm like, Hey, here's how you figure out the resistance profile of the machine. You go up, you grab the handle and you pull on it and you'd be like, where did it feel the hardest? Okay. So it's, it's, it's over on this side somewhere or it's over on that side somewhere, right? Because failure is, a, is it, is it an impact and your strength curve is going to, you know, start to change as you fatigue, et cetera. It's like, as long as the strength curve is good enough and you're going close enough to failure and you're doing a decent amount of volume, right? All these little intricate details, right? A lot of them are going to be, a lot of them are going to wash each other out because you're going to be slightly imperfect on one and another. And it might be one thing is a little bit more, like all these things are going to kind of wash themselves out. So don't get too attached to any variable. Our base principles are if we're focusing on mechanical tension right now, what I'm looking at is that it seems to be like we should be spending more of our volume on things that are in the length and half. But I don't think that we should do zero things of the other position, especially when you look at the fact of like, if I'm training a lengthened position of one muscle, it that joint position is the short position of something else. So from a joint stability, from an orthopedic, from just a mobility and like range of motion perspective, I think, you know, training the whole range of motion, right? Like having, a, we'll say being team full ROM, but from our perspective, we look at it as over the course of the whole program, not necessarily every single exercise needs to be end to end, but it's like, well, I think training through the, the, the entire range 
has a ton of benefits, even just from an, an orthopedic injury prevention, just neurological coordination perspective. And I think that it, it probably, if anything, it's either nothing or it improves your performance in that antagonist muscle when you're trying to train it in its stretch position, right? So maybe then one of the benefits of doing, you know, a very, very short hamstring position is it actually improves your ability to load your quads and they're very, very lengthened position, right? Cause you can coordinate those two muscles very well in that position. Your nervous system understands the length tension relationship muscles very well in that position. But if your goal is hypertrophy, you probably only need just the smallest amount of volume of that to maintain that quality, right? So you don't have to invest a ton of fatigue or whatever in short position exercises during those phases. And then I put my volume into those phases when my goals change. How did you feel, Mike? Did that summarize your thoughts or the discussion there, at least regarding kind of using the resistance bands on the hack squat? I think it summarized Catherine's thoughts. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the goal, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, has has it influenced your thoughts at all, Mike? Or are you still feeling, yeah? If you were to summarize your thoughts now, where where do they lay? No, no, of course it does. Uh, everything cast has uh, influences my thoughts. Um, I think that there's a very interesting idea about what fraction of that bottom twenty five percent is really the more stimulatory, whether it's all around, whether it's just the very bottom of it. I don't know what the answer to that is. But because generally we understand that the stretchier parts uh, tend to be the more hypertrophic, I'm not willing to say that that relationship all of a sudden hits an asymptote at 25%. I would imagine that linearity of it continues such that as you get to the point that's so low, uh, so much of a stretch that you lose the ability to produce tension with the target muscle, which of course would be too much range of motion. I would say anything to that point, I would say is probably my best guess is, is at least equally stimulative in the bottom 25% or even more stimulative as you go from 25 to 20 to 15 to 10 to five. And because I'm not sure which one of those they are, uh, I would say you know, 50% chance it's even through the 25%, 50% chance it gets more extreme as the lengthened uh, thing gets more extreme. I don't think there's a very high chance that the 15 to 25 is where the best part is. And if that's the case, then I think my average guess between those two is eh, I'm not going to, I'm not very comfortable reducing the amount of tension at that very bottom part. So what I would say is because without a banding condition with raw hack squats, the amount of stimulus input in the bottom 25% as a fraction of overall stimulus input is higher because you waste less energy on the other parts. Uh, that to me, it's still my best guess for hypertrophy, though I am curious if more research, both theoretical and practical, may show that, well, actually Cass had a point and that if we can do a little bit of banding to just slightly expand that bottom 25%, maybe we can put in more quality work there, especially if we find a way to cut off the banding as soon as you exit 25. And as Cass and I sort of figured out together, that's totally possible in a hack squat. It's just the band hooks would have to be real low. It'd be like, what the fuck are these for? <laughs> uh, and then the band would be pulled back up on the way up, but you'd have to have some kind of mechanism to do that. It's a little challenging to do. Maybe it would be something, it's very easy to do on a machine. Cammed machines can be designed to have any resistance curve you want. So I'd say the most interesting way to test that would have somebody in the laboratory sets up a machine. One of the machines through the bottom 25% is more and more force all the way up to the end range of motion. And one of the machines basically creates a box of force that's roughly the same the entire bottom 25%. And see which one of those yields better, either proxies for hypertrophy or hypertrophy. Until we have clarity on that, 
I think to me, the extra attention and time and effort paid to setting up a band condition is not in evidence. And I personally wouldn't use it. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody to use. But I think if somebody wanted to use it, I would say, well, listen, if you want to use some bands, don't just be an idiot about it. Go watch cast stuff, see how cast sets it up so that it mostly does the thing we want, which is to give us more uh, interesting stimulus at the bottom and less of the super crazy put 8,000 pounds on the machine uh, type of situation. Because as cast said, bands can be very, very easily abused. Um, so to me, I would say I respect Kaz's position. I understand where he's coming from, I think. I think there's a chance he might be correct. I assess that chance personally is lower than 50%. Um, and I assess the chance that my understanding is, is uh, higher, maybe 75 to 25%. So it's by no means uh, the case that I think Kaz is off in uh, psycho land. I have m- more disagreements with him on this model of periodization with AMPK, but that, that's a whole other thing. And all, again, all, all with, with the highest level of respect. Our disagreements with Kaz here are very, uh, I think Kaz is a serious thinker about this kind of stuff. And, and I'll be, and, and no doubt in the future, I'll be partnering with other people to take shits on Kaz's ideas. And they're all going to be like, hey, Kaz, I just think you're wrong about this. But I don't think Kaz is off in insane land making up crazy shit. I think is a lot of stuff was really thoughtful. Like this whole idea that you can accentuate the bottom 25% with a band, that's sharp stuff. And it may be something to it. I don't think there's something to it, but I can't tell you with high probability. I don't think that is. It's, I, I very much reserve it. Cass may be really correct. You know, I mean, like anything, you know, at a certain level with everybody, there's going to be some agree and disagree. Uh, but, you know, like the things that we're like, we're sitting here and disagreeing on this topic, but it's because, you know, both of us are just kind of like going by our biases based off of our interpretation. We have our suspicions, we but we just don't know. Yeah, right. We don't know. We don't know, right? Um, and, and and so we're making my cases, right? Now, if I could ask my knees, my knees know. So if I'm going to throw the anecdote card to like, you know, do the right hook to finish is like, I know one thing for sure for, for me personally is like my knees love reverse banded hack squad versus regular hack. And I know other people, but I also don't have a semi tendinosis in my left leg and I'm missing part of the meniscus or whatever. So maybe it tells me some secrets that, you know, a good knee would, would not, um, who knows, but I think, you know, when we, when we look at this stuff, it's so fun to have these conversations about the things that we don't know, but I think there's a lot of people that they just take a little bit. And if, if we don't know, they're going to act like they know. Um, and I think that once you start that cycle, you just, you get to a place where it's like, you cannot admit wrong. You can't take a step back. Um, and I that's think that's you don't understand physics, the, exactly. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to get into the math and stuff like that, but I, you know, I think it's very telling when, uh, when, when you can sit back and you can, you can straw man your own position, right. And steel man, somebody else's position. Um, and that's where I think, you know, these conversations are good, right. Cause even on it's, it's the same here is, is that the things that I disagree with you, I can absolutely look and see and understand your position on those, right? And that's why I, res- I mutually respect you as a, as a as a thinker in the industry. Likewise, um, and I think that's like these are the best conversations to have. Um, and Doug doesn't want to have one of those conversations with me, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fuel that fire anymore when we're probably gonna be cutting this thing off here pretty soon. <laughs> Guys, I want to say thank you for having this discussion and for the listeners and to confirm, definitely want to bring you both back on to kind of discuss how to identify you like someone like yourselves, someone who is presenting kind of thoughtful arguments surrounding biomechanics, because I think particularly, I I guess uh, it's something I've heard before is like, if someone knows a little bit more than you, uh, then it's hard to decipher 
like what's right or wrong if you just don't know much about the subject. So it can be really hard from a consumer, uh, even for myself sometimes looking at like biomechanics, some of it goes very in depth where it's kind of like a little bit over my head unless I have to really think through it and it can be very challenging. I think the same could be said for like training, nutrition, lots of aspects in life. If someone sounds confident and like they know what they're talking about and they know more than you on the subject, they could almost say anything and you're going to trust that individual. So I think that podcast will be really, really valuable. Just like I think a lot of people are going to take a lot from this discussion here because even to the point of which I think some people have in their head Banding is complete nonsense and you can't do it in any sort of productive way. It's kind of complete waste of time. And other people have the kind of point of view and perspective that it's for sure the most optimal way to do things. If you're not banding it, like, are you even like trying to train for hypertrophy in an optimal way? And it's like, well, actually, as these guys have just discussed, who have like opposite ends of the kind of uh, opinion on that subject, it's not black and white. There may be ways to do it productively. We can't be completely sure that it is the most productive though. So I think that's been really valuable for me to sit here and like hear you guys and go back and forth. It, it was nice to digest that as well. And I think people are going to really enjoy that. So I want to say thank you for myself for having you guys here and discussing that in a really fun and uh, kind of um, respectful way. And also I think thank you as from the audience, because I think people are going to really enjoy this. So uh, I'll make sure as ever, that people know where to reach out to you and everything uh, that you're doing is kind of linked in the description box. And just, I look forward to another discussion in future. So thanks so much. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks to you guys. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another a really cool community for people within our little niche. It's going to be a website that will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.